Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got a very special guest here today for Spirit in Action. Joseph Hunt is eloquent and informative, and frankly speaking, I'm a bit challenged to say exactly what his specialty or emphasis is. His expertise is unquestionable, and it extends to myriad corners of world healing work with environmental and sustainability disciplines. Economics and development are a big part of the picture. And very clearly, his compassion and concern for all people is paramount. In the late 1960s, he spent time with CARE and the Red Cross in Nigeria during the Biafran War. And after diverse studies, he spent decades around Asia in development work and research combined with environmental, equity, and equality issues. He currently teaches graduate disciplines at Harvard University. On top of it all, this towering Catholic boy from the Virginia countryside found his life's partner, Hayat Imam, in Bangladesh and a faith in Islam. He joins us via Zoom from just outside of Boston. Joseph, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Pleasure, Mark. Good to see you. Well, I have you here today because your work, your studies, your devotion to the world, as I perceive it, has had important strands that include ecology, economics, and certainly just the well-being of humans, and I think of other species as well. Actually, one of the first things that I noted was that at Fordham, you studied history and plant ecology, which led to a PhD in historical ecology. And I had no idea what that was, historical ecology. (laughs) So give me just the first footstep into the background that makes Joseph Hunt who he is. Well, I grew up as a sort of in in the southern part of the country where life is a bit slower and people know each other decided to go to college in New York City, where my instinct was I would learn as much from the city and this amazing congregation of ethnic, cultural groups, people from around the world, as I would in the classroom. And that turned out to be the case. The thing about plant ecology was not in my plan. There wasn't even any course in ecology in those days. I'm talking about the 1960s. I'm an old coot now. (laughs) But there are happenstances that can be beneficial later on in life. You can't plan everything. And when good things come your way, So I went to a Jesuit university, Fordham, but there was deep connection with the ministry, the Catholic ministry throughout Latin America. So there was this marvelous herbarium on campus that hardly anybody knew about. I mean, it was all about basketball and getting into law school, basically. But I sort of wandered over there and became fascinated with that, as I was with the natural life in, in the beautiful South. It held me in good stead because I just think that sometimes we underestimate the power of memory on many levels. That's maybe the main theme of our discussion today. I'd like to explicate it a little bit. One of the powers of memory is that we think we own, it's like the fact that it's the electrons that dominate us, not what we call the physical solidity of ourselves. We don't really own ourselves. We don't really own the place where we live, the house or the job or anything else like that. What we own is our own memory. And the memory that I had in those days was that this would be something I would put to the side. And if I had the opportunity to see other cultures, I would want to look at the, the history of the land, the history of how people lived on the land how they managed it with prudence, probably, and more caution and less haste than we did today. I wanted to learn from the lessons of other people. 
And that's been confirmed in all my experiences, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. So what seemed to be an odd little thing to be interested in at the time, with no context for creating a career for it, later on seeped into my memory. My wife is from Bangladesh, which used to be part of the greater colonial entity called India in the British days. But when I decided to pick a subject, I decided to recreate the history of an important part of the area that reflects climate change and reflects new challenges that could be possibly underpinned, that's the word, by a knowledge of the past. So the history of the land, the history of peoples on the land has always been a central interest of mine. Economics comes in there somewhere as well. And I've had some difficulty in thinking about and describing you. I've attached some adjectives to you already, and I'll have to add old coot to that. But (laughs) I've tried to figure out ecology, environment, world healer, all of those things seem to be part of who you are. How do you describe yourself? How do you think of your profession, your work in these past decades? I guess I think of myself as a development economist with an emphasis on development. And development is, of course, a multi-layered sort of thing. It's first of all about social development so that all of us live as hopefully evolved and mutually supportive and tolerant human beings. And where there are obstacles to doing that, sometimes economics can be a barrier to making that happen. Sometimes it can be a liberating factor, but it's not obvious. There's a prima facie evidence that economics always works that way, since economics often serves the powerful at the expense of the needy, as we're seeing in our country today, where recently our Congress was very happy to approve nearly a trillion dollars for the defense budget at a time when there's reluctance to provide essential needs for people who have lost their jobs and and their livelihoods and their savings. So that tension between the powerful and the needy lies at the heart of economics, and it's occupied the views of Adam Smith and Karl Marx and everyone else who's followed upon that. So as a student of economics, I figured we all have good ideas, and it's wonderful for us to exchange them, but unless we can root them in the soil of real investment, it's unlikely that things will change. So wherever you live, whether it's the euro or the dollar or the rupee, they're all very important. And how they're allocated and used becomes central to our concept of governance and our our sense of purpose and our sense of what's proper. You describe yourself as a development economist, but your work has always been, or almost always been, roughly in the area of Asia. Do we need a development economist for the United States as well? I think we do. It's interesting that if you look back to the governorship of Bill Clinton in Arkansas, a state that joined the Confederacy and is still finding itself in the modern world, Disraeli, the British prime minister after in the 1870s, he saw an emerging England, a northern England that was full of coal mining and collapsing cities and people without literacy and the capacity to earn for themselves. In a very rich southern England, it was benefiting from the wealth of the colonial areas, but not being shared in the entire country. And he said, any country that allows this to happen becomes not one nation, but two, divided unto itself. And how can the society have a heart and a soul if it's divided like that? The United States is now approaching the level of inequality and vast separation of wealth and power that was only, only matched by the robber barons of the late 19th century. It's a dangerous situation for us to be in because it promotes It promotes the concept that private sector, as we've seen in the last four years, has been adulated while the public sector has been been spurned, almost to the point where the private sector and all of its wealth is considered to be the public interest in this society. And those of us ordinary Americans who live and work in consonance with our neighbors, care about our communities, 
are regarded as the special interests who can get a crumb off the table occasionally, but do not play a vital role in the concept of how you form a society and how you finance what's really important. I'm thinking that you're applying some of the lessons that you learned dealing with Asia. American exceptionalism leads us to think that we should have different rules and different guidelines than they do. Is there a school of economic thought that is particularly close to how you, Joseph Hunt, think of economics as working? I mean, Karl Marx is out there. Adam Smith is one. I mean, there's a lot of different schools, and I'm wondering if any have been particularly influential for you. Well, not any one, but sort of a a combination of things, I would say. First of all, rely upon communities and allow communities to define what their needs are. It's remarkable levels of resilience and self-reliance that can emerge if communities have control, or at least considerable control, over how they provide their food, water, their energy, their housing. The support of government is through regulation and law and policy and sometimes subsidies to encourage things that will produce equitable development. And all those work well together. You have societies where gender equality, where priority for early childhood development and the other things that we care about flourish. In societies that don't, even the very wealthy have children with poor health, mental and physical health, so that reducing inequalities is one of the great questions of our time. And only those economists who are aware of that are going to be vital to our future. We've been going through a period, Mark, of about 50 years of darkness in the profession of economics. It sounds stark, but I'm not underestimating this. We moved away from the concept, came from John Maynard Keynes in the Great Depression of the 1930s, of deficit financing to support the essential needs of everyone to a concept that the free market, the free market capitalism, that private sector of trickle-down economics, which doesn't ever trickle down, it's not really a waterfall. Economics does not follow. The Bengalis, my wife's a Bengali, always say about the issue of love, that love follows the law of gravity. The law of gravity descends from parent to child, and only when the child moves along to the next generation and has their own children do they understand the power of love fully, because they're not just receiving it. They're giving it as grace is both received and given by the Lord. The current pattern of economics leaves us bereft of those kinds of factors. There's a very strong emphasis in shifting control of economic factors from the public to the private sector and redefining special interests, which should belong to the private sector, which plays a very vital and dynamic role to itself at the exclusion of the rest of us. And that needs to be reversed. Interestingly, I'm enheartened by this. In the recent years, one can see the Nobel Prize in economics is moving in this direction. There's much more attention now. There's the feeling that we've come to the end of our tether, that uh, after 50 years of supporting the private sector, this has given us monopoly capitalism. This has given us immense subsidies to fossil fuels, to industrial agriculture, to the military, to the elimination of regulations. And an unbounded giant like, like capitalism is a dangerous entity. Proper regulation that balances public and private needs is what we need, and we need to restore that. So for for your listeners who may be wondering if economics is, A, just gobbledygook, and it it tends to be because it's written in language and in journals that few people can understand, the essence of it is, are we developing a just and honorable society that looks at economy, ecology, and sociology as one integrated systemic entity that matters to each and every one of us, and we have a right to expect it. 
I hesitate to make you do this because I think your education has been extensive. <laughs> I don't think it ever stopped. But my sense is that from going to something like historical ecology to being mainly a worker for several decades as development economists, there's other pieces of your education that came in there. So could you flesh out the full CV or, or at least the important parts of the CV of Joseph Hunt that led you to do this work and empowered you to do it well? Wow, that's a great question. I've always thought that some of the really important things in life were never taught. And then we suddenly realize they're important and there's no guidance. So in a sense, one of the things you could do in a college education, I hope, is, is to maybe start moving along the path to understand that. One thing we know nothing about is how to raise children. We just have them. And then, my goodness, what is this incredible event? You feel depth of love and you feel depth of, an equal depth of responsibility, but you may not have the tools initially. So this humbles you. You have to learn it. Another thing that I think happens, and perhaps I'm influenced by the Jesuit education I was in, because I was always, even in high school, I was meant to believe, you're getting advanced calculus, kid. What are you doing to the streets that surround you? It was in an area of Washington, D.C. that was full of poverty and recent black immigrants from the South and a great deal of crime because there were no job opportunities. So we'd go out and we'd teach math to black kids in high school. It helped turn the possibilities for all of us as a generation. And it knew because we were the same age as me. When I got to Fordham, I became involved with a what was called a worker priest, a Puerto Rican worker priest who had deep connections in Mexico. And so at that point, now we have an immense Hispanic population, but there were just recent Puerto Rican immigrants. That was the largely Hispanic contribution to the city at that time. But many, many of the young, young children, particularly young boys, were trapped into, into drugs. And the, the mortality rate was very high. So I remember getting on the, <laughs> on the subway from the Bronx and coming down on the old 3rd Avenue L and connecting and getting down to the Lower East Side where people were dying on the street of drugs and alcohol addiction. And I would work every week with those children, then go over to uh, the Catholic worker and make soup. And then I would go to the Metropolitan Opera and act as an usher for, for the evening to make a couple of bucks and listen to Maria Callas. How do you beat an education like that? <laughs> And I see all those things as being the foundation of a life that takes service seriously, even if myself I'm quite inadequate to the things that I aspire to be and remain inadequate. But you got me on a path that said the cognitive pathway to learning is important, but so is the moral pathway. And if you could somehow at least aspire to, to bring it all together in yourself and keep working on it, probably not a bad thing. <laughs> Did you have specific elements of your education which you feel empowered your views about economics? Well, at Fordham, we were required, there was no option. I think the curriculum has now changed, but we were required to take philosophy and theology for at least the first few years. There were required courses. And so we learned the Western traditions in all of that, looking at both Catholicism and, and the Protestant uh, and also the, uh, the Jewish tradition, which is very important. After all, Judaism is the foundation of the, all the Abrahamic faiths. We could talk about Islam later on. I know you want to raise that. That's the view that I would take as well. So that early sense of an ecclesiastical feeling about the world and how that should influence the way we approach economics was definitely a part of me. Yeah, it has and remained so. Because economics, the way it's usually taught, is taught around the concept of the rational man. You and I, sorry about the sexism of that, but it was always called the rational man, as though women didn't exist. The rational man pursues his own individual self-interest, always, because otherwise he's not behaving the way a, a responsible person should. 
We're all looking for our advantage at the margin, which can be talked of as a value, but is reflected in a price. And that price is negotiated in a market. And the market is, is in a sense, and the price is the visual manifestation of the, of the iceberg. But down below is a value system that underlies all of this. I remember feeling this was absolutely ridiculous and it didn't cohere at all with my sense of what religion and, and what good ethics would, would require. So you have to compartmentalize those things in a certain way until the point that you diverge from it and, and take a different direction. <laughs> and I think one has to do that. To me, just like learning how to raise a child when you really are, are not trained for it, the classic question that we face in our education is, which of the two M's do we choose? And I don't think you could choose both. There's money and then there's meaning. And I don't want to make that sound like a pompous choice or I'm St. Joseph or anything like that. I'm deeply flawed. Working in New York, the center of financial capital in the world, or being surrounded by really got nice guys who all wanted to get into Wall Street and law school and advise major corporations. I found myself a little bit of a withering flower, despite my six foot six and weigh 230 pounds, but <laughs> I found myself a little bit distant from that. And finding places like Lower East Side with the Puerto Rican kids and the Catholic worker as, if you will, uh, alternative pods to think about how to balance one with the other. The search for meaning is hard, and we all spend our whole lives doing it. I even worked for a major bank at one point that disposes a great deal of wealth in different directions, but it always seemed to me I should be in it but not of it. I know that certainly on the liberal end of the scale, a number of people who would be my close friends will tend to think of banks as sources of evil, <laughs> that they're not going to do good in the world. I was actually rather heartened recently when a few different banks, including Deutsche Bank, they will no longer do business with Donald Trump and his subsidiaries, if you will. So they can be as much of a force for good as any other people working in the world. One step in your development that I think is really significant is the time that you spent in Nigeria, the late 60s. For a lot of us in the United States, we're all focused on U.S. and Vietnam, but the Biafran War happened 68-69 in Nigeria, and you had a part in that. How did you end up there? That is not an obvious step to me. And in fact, the two are connected, the Vietnam part and the because as I said, even though I've been abroad in India, it was all part of a plan. I was in India before I came to MIT, and I learned in India wonderful things. Again, some of the big jobs that were offered, I was, I was on an internship program for 13 months, and there were a group of maybe a dozen of us in a master's program out of Syracuse University, which has been training the foreign service for forever, about the year 1900 or so. And from that, you can go into business, you can go into the foreign service, and so on. So I came back from India, fired up about the idea that Education and health were the critical things that can bind us together because if every child has a shot at good health and good nutrition and learning and growing tall and strong with immunity, blah, 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 then we were doing something positive. And I went to MIT to get the skills and particularly the economic side and to move forward. But the first year I went to MIT was 1967 and 68. That's when President Johnson, under great pressure, decided to eliminate the deferments from the military service for young Americans. Because it had been said that the working class kids, the poor kids, were being followed into the Vietnam War and the rich kids were getting awful. I was hardly rich, but I was, did have a, a deferment. So the decision I had to make as I went to MIT was, do I become part of the selective service system in Massachusetts, which is very liberal, and find ways to let you keep going and get your studies done? 
or keep it in Virginia. Now, Virginia is the land of the Winchester rifle, <laughs> which was key to the whole Confederacy and its attempt to secede from the United States. So the, the mentality of Virginia was anybody who is in, is in school when he should be serving the country has got to go. So I received my first year at MIT, five letters from the United States Army saying, congratulations, you've been selected to join the finest fighting army in the world. But I had set it up because friends of mine who switched from Louisiana to Cambridge, Massachusetts, find their deferments were just fine. And so I had to face that choice. I didn't want to go to Canada <laughs> and I didn't want to go to jail. By a mellifluous accident, when I was in India, on one particular occasion, I was in a public bus where there was a demonstration against the United States government's policy in Vietnam. And a very polite young Indian student said, excuse me, sir, are you American? And I said, yes. And then they said, Jai Hind, which means Indian sovereignty. And so I ended up on the street with a broken arm and problems with the hip and, and, and other, other areas. And when it came to actually getting admitted into the Ar United States Army down the road, at MIT, this arm is straight and this arm is crooked. And so they said, you can't climb the walls in basic training, you're out. So I didn't do anything sneaky to get out of it. It was just, a, I wasn't physically qualified. So in a way, that was a break for me. But there I was at 23. And I said to myself, well, this is probably a sign that I should do something else. I can always go back to school. It's not the end of the world. I really do want to do something in Africa because it was quite clear that a civil war in a young nation had started a very important young nation, still a very important nation, Nigeria, the most largest and most wealthiest country in Africa, at a time when Africa was just beginning its independence struggle. First country was gone in 1957, Nigeria in 1960. So six years into its independence, a huge civil war ensued. And it was complicated not just by tribal disagreements, but also the fact that there had been probably the, at that time, the greatest reservoirs of low sulfur oil were discovered off the coast of Nigeria. And so the war was aided and abetted by international oil corporations. And I said to myself, I've just been to India and I was, I was involved in uh, famine relief in a situation in India. I said, I see a million deaths. This is not on my watch. I'm 23 and this, this is not going to happen in my world. That was an existential challenge for me. I then found ways to go there and work for some time, providing food and medical relief to moms and kids. And I do say moms and kids because in wartime, men tend to die much more rapidly than women do. Women are, they had the pot and they had the, the cassava and they had matches to boil it up and make a porridge out of it. And they had their children under their arms. And I would find men just dying all the time because they had lost their meaning in life. It's quite extraordinary. No one ever, nobody ever writes about that, but that's one of the characteristics of war, that women are much stronger and endure under conditions of terrible, terrible tragedy. So in any case, I got through that. Had some unpleasant experiences with the Nigerian military, but they didn't shoot me and came home and started to think about a different sort of life. And it wasn't really until a dozen years later that I felt I could go back to MIT and start all over again and did my PhD. But hopefully, I probably was a good decision because now I had, was more informed by life and was more discriminating about what I needed to do because I had a clearer sense of purpose about my life than I did as, as a young kid. I never talked about these things to anybody, so I'm not sure if it's of any interest to anyone. <laughs> it's of interest to me, for sure. Certainly through the 80s and 90s, so much of your work is throughout Asia, but in that, you said 12 years before you went back to MIT. What did you do in those 10 plus years? Oh, well, I came back to America, as I mentioned, and liked Boston because I'd been there before. 
Initially, there were some difficulties because I had contracted a number of tropical diseases when I was in Asia and Africa, malaria, yellow fever, dengue, which I wouldn't wish on anybody, those sorts of things. And I had relapses of diseases, so I was a rather sickly young man in and out of hospitals for some time. That kind of cleared in my mid-20s. I worked as a journalist. I thought to myself, I'm not ready to go back and do a PhD after what I've been through. I went through what we now call PTSD. There was no name for it then. Years of difficulties in sleep, constant headaches, aches and pains that would be appropriate for a person my age now, but not appropriate. They were psychosomatic in nature. I'd seen, I'd seen a million people die right on my, right on my watch. And there was a sense of whether we call it in, in the world of faith, an overly scrupulous conscience or whatever, the feeling of failure of not having achieved what I should have achieved, which was, of course, to save everybody. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but underlying that silliness is the belief that each and every one of us is, every, each and every one of us is a child of God and no one's more important than anybody else. And so in that kind of internal milieu, I went on for some years and then gradually built a life around community, a lot of work on safe energy, a lot of work on food security, including the United States, but also abroad. And then through meeting my wonderful wife, we've built a life around wanting to be members of a responsible community, both local and also global. There's so many strands that I want to follow, Joseph, and we're not going to be able to do it in the time. I'm sure there will be bonus excerpts to this interview that will appear on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. So, folks, after you hear the full interview, just remember that there's going to be chunks out there that I had to remove for broadcast purposes just to fit in the time constraints. On our site, you'll find links, for example, to the Poverty Lab at MIT and to Angus Deaton, who's of Yale, who Banerjee and Dufla and Angus Deaton have received Nobel Prize. And there's some real valuable thought that's related to that. But again, just come to NortonSpiritRadio.org. We have links to these special topics and to our guests of the past 15 years there. Follow our links from our site and listen to the bonus excerpts. And while you're there, remember to post comments on this interview and rate the program and consider clicking on our donate button, which is how we support this full-time work. We view the work of Northern Spirit Radio as lifting up voices like those of our guest, Joseph Hunt, who's with us here today for Spirit in Action, so that we can help heal the world. We view ourselves as a media arm. There's a whole lot of conservatives and fundamentalists and special interests who are controlling most of the media in the United States, 90% plus of it owned by just six corporations. And so please support Northern Spirit Radio and especially, and even before you support Northern Spirit Radio, support the community radio stations, other local media who provide an outlet for words and ideas, concepts that some special interests want to shut down completely. For those, those who haven't looked at it, you can click on the United Nations Development Program and ask for one picture that gives you the sustainable development goals. This is a real change in the way we're thinking about the world and our role in it. I don't want to get into a lot of extensive gobbledygook, but we started in the year 2000, a concept that we can't just look for endless economic growth because that's going to destroy us and destroy the planet. We have to talk about growth in the context of reducing poverty, of providing universal education and health and other types of things. So for 15 years, we had a set of millennium development goals that were partially successful, but not very much so. So in 2015, the United Nations says, look, we have one more shot at this. In life, you don't get into the shots. 
we're going to call them now the Sustainable Development Goals, and we're going to run them to 2030. So we've just finished the first five years of this period, 2015 to 2020. So the world is evaluating whether we're making progress in areas like no poverty, no hunger, elimination of literacy, especially for girls, universal ed and health, as I said, gender equality, clean water and sanitation. Your listeners might be astonished to learn that there are two billion people on this planet, two and a half billion people that don't have access to sanitation, and a billion people don't have access to clean water. Well, I know we're all mammals, like other species, but Do we want to be crawling around every day trying to find a place to do the private necessities that are required of us as as animals, really? Well, that's the situation that hundreds of millions of women are facing with risks of rape and other kinds of problems that that are attendant to that. It would seem to me that this emphasis on the link between economics and ethical responsibility for others is embodied in this range of sustainable development goals. And when you see that picture of them, You might say to yourself, well, darn, now if we have a purpose for our foreign aid, now we really need to do more to help mothers and children lead the kind of lives and achieve the potential that we all have access to in our world. That's just my suggestion. And again, I'm going to provide more of those links on the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website. Again, support your local media, support the people raising up the voices, people like Joseph Hunt, who's with us here today. I want to dive into that in a little bit, but first I want to grab a a strand of something you just mentioned about, Joseph. The change in what we talk about economics in terms of sustainable development, that we can't have unfettered economic growth, just the fact that we say our GDP grows by 3% every year or 5% every year. In China, it's been going particularly faster than that. If we do that for the globe, we will destroy ourselves and a whole range of species. We're already well on track to do that at this point. I'd like you to talk some more about that intersection between environmentalism, sustainability, and economics. I think you've got a whole lot of insight in part because in dealing with Asia, a number of countries which have been labeled underdeveloped, to raise them to be of the same economic ilk, I might say, as what we have in the United States, isn't that going to destroy the globe? Is I mean, if everybody was as wasteful as those of us in the United States, if each of us in the, in the world ate as much meat as the average American eats, I think it would be an economic calamity for the world. Talk about the intersection of development and environmentalism care for people. You're, you're saving people who are dying of all kinds of health issues and they're not getting educated, etc. These are all big questions and I expect you to solve them just like you always intended in the next 10 minutes. Go for it, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to owe me a, a cappuccino and a brioche. I, I drive a hard deal here. Okay. Well, I remember when I, at one point in my career, I was a, part of a Harvard team advising the Ministry of Finance in Indonesia. This was in the 1980s when the country was pretty well established, but still had many things to do. I remember one controversy that astonished the Indonesians, and they had many well-trained economists from places like UCAL Berkeley, which was really outstanding faculty. So the Berkeley mafia, as they were known within the Ministry of Finance, went humph when we said, you know, if you look at the rate at which you're despoliating your fabulous rainforests in some of your islands, some of the greatest reservoirs of biodiversity in the world, If you look at that and compare that to your rate of economic growth, which they were proud to say was in the range of 8 to 10% more, if you really calculated the costs to other species, to the 
destruction of soils, which is the foundation of all life. Without soils, there's no food. Your growth would be minus 5 to 10%, not 8 to 10% on the positive side of the divide. The first time that the economics of the rational man was shown to be irrational. It's an important lesson because in so many aspects of life and not just in the developing world, we assume that the rationality in the small for the self-interest of the rational man is going to be fine in the large, but it often contributes to irrationality and great tragedy and, and loss in the large because the individual is part of a, of a system. And economists talk as though, let's get the economy right and everything else will be fine, but the economy lives within the environment, within the planet. If it's doing destructive things that underlie the sustainability of the planet, we have to change the economics, basically. China, for example, is in a very desperate situation in two respects, to, to follow along from the Indonesian analogy. So the world has plenty of water. I mean, the hydrological cycle replenishes itself through precipitation and all that sort of thing, and it stores itself. But it's very une unevenly distributed. In the region that you live in, Mark, the beautiful Great Lakes region, Great Lakes have about 4% of all of the world's fresh water which is not, of course, used, most of it is, is, is preserved and used for ecosystem services, broadly speaking, to that region. That's why your region has been so stable for so many generations. I mean, it, it helps a population of perhaps 50 million Americans and Canadians who are very lucky to live what they are. But that's 4% of the available fresh water in the world. Most of the world's water is not fresh water. It's not accessible. But China, as a nation, with closing on, in on 2 billion people, has only 7%. It doesn't even have twice the amount of water that you benefit from and you and your, your fellow Midwesterners benefit from. So obviously, that drives much of what they're doing. And now they're re-engineering major rivers. They're looting at an extraordinary rate. And one of the things they're doing in excess is producing so much pork in particular, pork and chicken, that reflects the rising expectations of, of a population whose per capita income has increased it's doubled several times in the last 30 years. That's a positive impact of development. But one of the sustainable development goals is linking responsible consumption with responsible production. That's one of the issue, economic issues that's raised as a matter of creating an ethical economy. And they're not doing that. In fact, there is a serious question whether the demand for pork in China. We have an oil reserve in the United States. China has a pork reserve. It is so important to the Chinese population that producing enough pork to meet the needs of the consumer demand is regarded as an issue that could, could lead to instability in the government if they didn't maintain it. And yet they're forced to slaughter millions and millions of pigs every year due to a combination of poor hygiene. There are infectious diseases similar to the coronavirus that we're now plagued by and so on. There are pictures of the rivers that flow into Shanghai having thousands of carcasses of pigs because they had to be culled because of the risk to themselves and to the risk to human health. So clearly we have a situation that's out of control, and the whole concept of GDP is a very narrow one and not sufficient to provide either social equity or even human happiness, it seems to me. So the economics profession has a lot of work to do to reorient itself to the realities of our past, present, and future. That is a great primer uh, starting out point for us. Of course, there's much more you could go into. Again, the decades that you spent on development throughout Asia, we're just going to skim the surface of what you know, what you've learned, what you've seen. I guess I want to take a detour quickly to talk specifically about religion. You grew up Catholic. You've already mentioned about the Jesuit influence on your development of your mind and your worldview. 
Along the way, you had the privilege of meeting a woman, Hayat Imam, and you had the blessing of living in Asia in a way that most of us haven't had. I lived in Africa for a couple of years, which certainly widened my view of the world and my understanding. Could you talk a little bit about the opening of your ethic, moral, religious world and what got you to the point where you're a Muslim now? Yes, as I may have suggested, in my youth, after I came back from India and Nigeria, it was a bit of a whammy. The idea of just going back to school and finishing a degree wasn't killing it for me. It seemed to me that my, my belief in faith was not being as efficacious as I would have liked it to be. I saw, I buried a great many children and saved some perhaps, but it had a great effect. But when I married this wonderful person who was centered in a faith called Islam, I hadn't really known much about it up to that point because we're not, as Americans, we're not taught much about it. But gradually over time, and I think we all experience faith through others, through community, through practical everyday life. I began to see from her and her family back in Bangladesh, spread out in different parts of the world, that it was a common communal experience for them. Even within Christianity, Catholics don't have much to do with Protestants or vice versa. You know, there's kind of, kind of a segregation there. Even in Biafra, we had problems coordinating between the Catholics and the Protestants who were providing food and medical relief because they said, we, that's our turf. We're Protestant and we're going to help the Protestants. And the Catholics said they're going to help the Catholics. And we all know about the religious wars of Europe. So I thought to myself, well, in Islam, they seem to, as a later religion, have overcome this because Muslims are Muslims from their point of view. Of course, that really isn't true because there's also sectarianism there. But I was really impressed by what I saw. At one point, my mother-in-law said, we don't require that you become a Muslim, but we would like you to be educated in the Muslim faith so that your children can be raised as Muslims. Otherwise, there will be confusion in the family and maybe conflict between the parents over possessing the religious future of their children and so on. We don't want to see that happen. So I said, sure. So I learned and read the Quran for the first time and found it very powerful, just as I love all the sacred texts. One of the things that has upset me the most in recent years I remember there was a Baptist minister, Baptist or Methodist, I'm not sure, in Florida, who had a, had a great burning. He collected all the Korans he could find in his local county, and in front of his Catholic church, in front of the cross of Jesus, burned them all in a great bonfire. But I said to myself, in my trails around the world, have I ever heard of Muslims burning the Torah or the Talmud or the New Testament or the Old Testament? No. Texts are sacred. And being inside a great place of worship is a place where no one should ever worry about being harmed or abused in any way. So I thought to myself, well, I've learned something from my wife, that tolerance and understanding and gratitude is the foundation of faith. And if you don't have those, you better rethink where you're going. So I did convert to Islam around the year 1990. So I was already in middle age. They didn't require it of me. But when they came, they said, we knew you would eventually. And if I can just, those of our, our wonderful uh, listeners who may wonder whether Islam thinks of itself as superior because it came along later and so on, may I just quote one thing that I've found in the Quran to all of you? The Quran is divided into chapters, which are called surahs. Right at the beginning of the Quran, it says in surah number two, verse 136, Say ye, we believe in God and the revelation given to us and to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob and the tribes, and that given to Moses and Jesus, and that given to all prophets from their Lord. We make no difference between one and another of them. We bow to Allah in Islam. So from the very beginning, that sense of we're part of a hierarchy, we're part of a consecutive secular history in time, but we're also part of a sacred history, and we are the receptors of the foundation 
basically from Judaism, upon which both Christianity and Islam are based and remain based. That was the sort of thing that impressed me from the very beginning. It wasn't, no, we got it better, and you poor fools are lost, and you're going to be condemned, and we're going to heaven. None of that stuff is in Islam, which may surprise some people. We're all traumatized by what happened in 9-11. All the Muslims that I know were horrified by that and put no credence whatsoever in those people. That's not what Islam is all about. I'm going to jump back now to some of the development questions, the kind of things that you've dealt with. I mean, you've got these decades of work in international development, and it seems to me, uh, you've already alluded to this, there have been successes and there have been places that are still blocked, development that hasn't happened. I'd like it if you could talk about just a few of the issues, the ways forward that have been successful and some of the ways in which we're still blocked. I I think that there's so many issues that we don't even begin to view here in the United States. We don't understand the culture of how things happens. You know, people changing what food they eat is one of the issues or whether you use the right hand or the left hand to wipe, you know, in Africa, which I encountered, right? There's so many things that are on a fundamental day-to-day way of life that rise up the scale. They affect culture, tradition, economics, and the ways that countries are ruled. I'm just wondering if you can give us any clues to what has worked in terms of development, what hasn't, where the blocks are, where we need to have more development to go forward. Sure. I would love to say a couple of things, and and this should inform our concept of foreign aid and the relationship that we have with other countries and sharing some of our wealth and directing it to good ends. I mentioned the sustainable development goals, but things that we can do are number one diet. As you mentioned, I'm glad you brought this up. We consume twice as much meat as even English people do, and they consume more than anybody else in the European Union, let alone the rest of the world. In a country like Bangladesh or Indonesia, meat is experienced by the poor maybe twice a year. There are certain times in the religious calendar of Islam where people slaughter a a lamb or a goat, and the meat would be distributed to the poor. But we view it as the essential part of every day's. If China and the United States, just to wave the hand, were to reduce their meat consumption by, say, two-thirds, there would be enough additional calories, kilocalories, to feed 800 million people. The number of people who are severely undernourished, don't have three square meals a day, is about a billion in the world. That's the sort of thing that could occur if our ethical yearnings for equality and justice matched our personal patterns, responsible consumption, and enforcing the policies that lead to responsible production through through the system and the government, we could do remarkable things. Another example I like to cite is targeting investment to children. When you set up bank accounts for a nine-year-old, remarkable things happen. First of all, an increase in self-efficacy. Drawings of children are very instructive. In Indonesia, they commonly will give an eight-year-old a piece of paper and some crayons and say, draw yourself in the middle of a great rainstorm. And, you know, in the tropics, poof, rainstorms are really formidable. You know, boom, from one second to the next. The child who sees himself only uses the black crayon as huddled over like this, like a, a ball, has very low self-efficacy and probably will drop out of school by the third grade. The child who uses the colors and finds a rainbow in the background emerging after the great storm or has an umbrella, a multicolored umbrella, is very high self-efficacy. And the psychological literature confirms this, that in fact, resilience in early childhood 
has a great effect on one's capacity to learn, and not only the formal learning of schooling, but lifelong learning, as you've been discussing. In fact, your whole wonderful project here, Mark, is an exercise in lifelong learning and new opportunities. So when foreign aid is oriented toward the child and the child getting a bank account with $10, $20 in it, that they can spend on their own, what they usually spend it on is books and the opportunity to read and write, to advance beyond maybe very low expectations of the surrounding community. That's important. The second thing I would say, you quoted in in our correspondence something about how healthier populations have lower mortality and fertility. That's true. There is a virtuous cycle of inclusion based on self-efficacy, based on gender equality, gender mainstreaming of programs. It has remarkable effects. One of the strongest findings in social science that's been replicated now for half a century is that when half of the girls of an age group, let's say eight to 10-year-olds, have a chance to enter the sixth grade, not necessarily graduate from primary school, not getting even to high school, doesn't matter whether or not they have available family planning methods when they're older or anything else like that. When they enter the sixth grade as a cohort, most of them, the total fertility rate is cut in half in their generation. Their reproductive ages would be, say, 16 to, let's say, 40. That's a powerful independent effect that has to do with the sense of autonomy that only comes from respect, from understanding, and when it's supplemented by both educational opportunities, health opportunities, privacy opportunities, part-time jobs that delay age of marriage, and raising and empowering the level of women as leaders in education and health and in government and private industry so that women, young girls have role models. When all that happens, society changes. In fact, demographers are now revising their estimate of the world population. It was assumed that it would peak, if that's the word, at maybe 11 to 12 billion. Most of us are thinking now that with the decline in infant, child, and and child mortality, which has been going on around the world, I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson who has an expectation to live to 100, other factors being equal. There's no reason why that can't be at least 80 to 90 in other parts of the world. When all those factors are in place, we may in fact level out to 9 billion, which will be just enough to support a global planet if we get our policies to correct. We have to deal with the existential threats of pandemics, of economic inequality, of the risk of of malnutrition and starvation, which is increasing because of the pandemic. When we do all those things at the same time, climate change, if we deal with those as a responsible generation, we may have eight and a half to nine billion people because of this revolution among girls. And that's the key. That's a social development issue that all of us can relate to because each and every one of us has beloved daughters, cousins and nieces and aunties and, and so on, whose full development as human beings is central to what we call ourselves, what we call a family, what I call us, what we call humanity. So the uplifting of women will uplift all of us and the planet, not just our species. No question about it. Data from Asia and Africa, which I offer to my students, I teach graduate courses at Harvard on sustainability, shows that when you increase, India, for example, had a long history of subjugation of women, and it still is a serious problem in many respects. But what is called the equivalent of our Congress, the Parliament, the Lok Sabha, put in a law that said that 40% of all the leadership in all the villages, the panchayats as they're called in India, must be reserved for women. And as that's happened over time, 30 years, over the last 30 years, the proportion of women has increased to 50 or even more percent. And when that happens, women focus on water and sanitation, making certain that girls graduate from primary school, on sharing the rights to a tributary of a river, you know, with a water catchment, all the things that matter to the essentials of life. 
coming up with renewable energy. These are all the issues that women are raising and that men have not, because men tend to focus on, I want to make as much money off of, of the crops that I grow on my land. And the women are saying, yes, but all these other things are interdependent. And it's a wisdom that is being tapped all over the world. You just have to give women the opportunity. They're the key. Uh, since we only have a couple of minutes, would you mind if I return to the issue of, of, of religion to finish with some observations on how our communities can work together and how they can be very successful? Because that's an important thing to me. This will be the perfect way to end the Spirit in Action interview with Joseph Hunt. Appreciate that so much. You're so receptive to ideas. I've made some notes to share with your wonderful listeners. It's around what I would call the power of memory. And it's related to that concept that I had with the young girls trying to get their education, a virtuous circle of inclusion. It would go something like this. Let's take the 2017 bombing of a mosque in Minnesota and how other religious communities supported that community. The thing that I mentioned about the Muslim, about the Baptist minister burning the Quran was rejected by all of the Christian groups saying, you do not destroy sacred text. These are the foundations for the way to lead a proper life. Fortunately, in, in Minnesota, there was a pipe bomb and nobody died. But the person who was then arrested, the, Amer the white American who did so, said, what I want is a return to the good old days. Well, what does that mean in a country where faith has been the foundation of so much? Americans can very well look forward every year to one of the extraordinary human events. It's called the Hajj. It's an obligation for all Muslims. And you can, on YouTube or whatever, see anywhere from 8 to 10 million people, many of them very struggling in their lives, who've put together their savings to go and express their devout faith. Let's learn more. Let's be less incurious as a population. Let's experience that the way we were going to church and learn more about that. In Pittsburgh, there was a synagogue that was horribly violated in October of 2017 with, I think, 11 people killed and six wounded very badly by a single person with, uh, with weapons. The response of the Muslim community was to start a sharing ground movement that raised a quarter of a million dollars to handle burial issues for the community and for others in need, but also to build community awareness around the commonality of Muslims feel that without Judaism, there wouldn't be a foundation for what they do. It's what the British call a bottom. It's a platform. You don't build a barn until you've got the foundation, and Muslims are standing upon that foundation. In World War II, the Nazis didn't back off too much, but the Grand Mosque in Berlin housed 400 Jewish families. And when they came to the imam and said, you must release these people, he said, go away, you are Satan. And they didn't mess because, of course, Germany has, no, has coal, but it has no oil and gas. They needed to work with the Muslim community in Africa and the Near East to get the fuel necessary to conduct their war. <laughs> in Tunisia, where my wife grew up, one of the places my wife grew up, again, the leader of the Muslim community was asked to identify all the Jews in all the villages. All he said was, we've lived as brothers and sisters all of our lives. You're not going to change that. And similarly, when uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, some marauder came up and murdered 50 Muslims trying to pray. The response came back from that same Pittsburgh synagogue and other Jewish communities, providing help, financing, reciprocity, depth of understanding. To me, this is the lightning opportunity we're not capturing, and it has to come from one human heart to another, and faith informs that. And my last thing I would say to you, which comes out of my own Irish heritage, my relatives came from Ireland after the Great Famine in 1847-1848. And in the United States, due to policies implemented by President Jackson, I believe, a trail of tears occurred where indigenous Native American communities were forced to leave their lands and move out to the west from Florida and other places in between. 
And the Choctaw Native community learned about the famine in Ireland, and they contributed $170 that were sent to the Irish Relief Fund in New York City to help the starving Irish. And recently, during the pandemic, the Irish people raised a million dollars to help the Hopi and Navajo reservations, where the pandemic is killing more people than any other population in the United States. And that's what I call the power of memory. The depth of understanding is never forgotten, and it replenishes itself every generation of children who are told these stories. I work in agriculture a lot, and a dear friend of mine was a scientist in charge of helping the indigenous peoples in Peru, up in the mountains, grow potatoes, and many of the potatoes were being lost. And she reconstituted through genetic means a certain kind of purplish potato that had not been available in a hundred years. It was a magical achievement in science. And the people in the mountains who wear the hats and the shawls, they said, what you have restored to us is the culture in agriculture. We say the word, but we never focus on the culture. Now I can talk to my grandchildren and great-grandchildren about what my grandparents and great-grandparents did when they grew this particular plant, which has disappeared from our culture. So it's a reminder that culture and faith are interwoven, that humanity is enriched and enlivened by memory, and that in the end, we're all just folks. Thank you so much, Joseph, for calling those things back to our memory. So many of them we've heard bits and pieces of over the year. We have glimpses of them, but you bring them together so powerfully. The work that you do currently at Harvard that you've done with the development funds across Asia has been so important. And now I know that you've wished to save everyone, but I am quite sure that your work has saved so many and has planted seeds of hope for us in the future. And I thank you so much for doing that lifetime of work and service and for joining us here today for Spirit in Action. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And again, folks, there's bonus excerpts you're going to find on northernspiritradio.org, along with links to places like the Poverty Lab at MIT and the United Nations Development Goals. Come to northernspiritradio.org, follow those links, learn more about Joseph Hunt, and be thankful and support those working on healing the world, as Joseph has been for so many decades. And join us here again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh